Well, good morning. We do praise God for allowing us to be a part of this ministry here at the Village Church. It truly has been a blessing. You know, we each have sometimes people in, in Scripture that we connect with in many unique ways. And someone that I always connect with is Peter. Not sure why, but um, the fact that he sometimes he's, uh, the fact that he was one of the ones that right before Christ denied Christ, and yet he saw him face to face. And yet I, I, we see his change in perspective and how his life was totally turned over when you just spend any time in First and Second Peter is that you come to grow that. But one of my favorite uh, things, and I want to express this, is that in, in, actually in Luke chapter 9, when, if you remember when Jesus took up Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, Jesus was transfigured before those disciples, and they saw Moses and Elijah with them. And what I love about that little passage is that there's this little response from Peter that didn't make any sense, but it just came out of his heart. If you remember the phrase, he says, Oh, Lord, it is good to be here. Should we go and make three tabernacles? And what he was trying to express in that statement was is that it was so good to be at that place because it was something supernatural. And he wanted to build houses because he wanted a house, a tabernacle, a booth for Jesus in this transfigured state for Moses and Elijah. In many ways, that's my expression of how I see about the village church. And when you've been part of this fellowship, it's just good to be here. So praise God for that. Well, if you were like Glory and I, and I think many, many of you know Lori, uh, we've been married 33 years, and so when you do the math of that, this has been our only church since we've been married. And one of our traditions, obviously, after Thanksgiving is, you know what happens, is that you quickly make that shift in all of your decorations and you begin to put up your Christmas tree and other decor. And so we, we got our Christmas tree up, and Lori does a great job, and I'll be very, very careful with this. <laughs> this is a special ornament, as well as all ornaments are special. But what's unique about this particular ornament is that if you turn it like this, you're going to see different aspects of the actual Christmas story. Well, Alec and Sierra, you can just imagine when they came over this week and they saw the Christmas lights and the Christmas tree and Lori just very, with a lot of wisdom, always puts the, the ornaments that are touchable at that arm's length. And so they go at them and then, so this one was a little bit higher, but it affords the opportunity to be able to pull off and to be able to explain to them the Christmas story and to be able to tell it by just taking like an ornament and kind of moving it around into a circle. Well, during this Advent season, we've been looking at one verse. And this one verse in Isaiah the prophet, we're taking it, that one verse, and I wanted to liken it to that we're just turning that one verse, and we're seeing a different part of the Christmas story each week. And I want you to, if you could, open up your Bibles with me whether they're electronic or they're paper copy. And as I, you can see here, I'm still a little bit old school. I asked Michael, I said, I'd like to use my teaching station because this is where I'm comfortable. <laughs> and I want to use my Bible, no iPad. So, um, and 
I'm going to stay to my notes so I don't spend like Sunday school and we might spend a year on this one verse, right? <laughs> you know how that can happen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The names of Jesus, as we see in this passage, it is my hope that today that we're going to look at that one name today in a new profound, a new reflective, and a weighty, weighty perspective. Now, for some of you that may be new to the Village Church, you're going to say four weeks on one verse. Then again, for those that have been around, it's kind of cutting it short, isn't it? One of, the, one of the, the pastors that I like to read, he's an actually a, an old 1800s uh, pastor, Charles Spurgeon. If you've ever read any of Charles Spurgeon's stuff, you have to be very focused on what he writes. You cannot just kind of read it very quickly. Well, I like to look at some of his things, and I wanted to share with you something this morning that I thought was extremely profound as it relates to how we handle the Word of God. And Spurgeon's quote here is just off of two words, actually three words, and it relates to Matthew 4.4. 4. Remember when Jesus was being tempted, and he would say is that it is written, okay? So I'd like to read this to you, so listen along. Spurgeon writes, How are we to handle this sword of it is written? First, with deepest reverence, let every word that God has spoken be law and gospel to us. Never trifle with it. Never try to evade its force or to change its meaning. God speaks to you in this book as much as if, again, to go to the top of Mount Sinai and lift up his voice in thunder. I like to open the Bible and to pray, Spurgeon says, Lord God, let the, let the words leap out of the page into my soul, thyself making vivid, powerful, and fresh to my heart. When was the last time that you were stunned? Think about it. If not stunned, astonished. If not astonished, amazed. Or even further, shocked. This morning, we should be stunned. We should be stunned at the magnificent and glorious story of Christmas in this one little verse. Now, in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, we need to take a very non-traditional approach. Maybe we're just way too familiar. We're way too familiar. We get comfortable. We get comfortable in telling the story. We get comfortable in reading the verses at Christmas each year. You know how you have your family traditions? Well, we have one too. Every Christmas morning, right, hon? We read the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. Maybe you do as well. You know, I love that story. I love to read it, and I love to share it with the kids. I love the story because what it does is it anchors us. 
it anchors us to Christmas. It anchors us to history, and it anchors us to that family tradition. Or does it simply just summons us into the commencement of the day's activities, Christmas Day, and presents and food once again? Hmm, something to think about. So in keeping with our church's theme, as you know, over this past year, we've been, quote, going deeper, right? Seated in a lot of different series. And so I want to keep with that this morning. And so here's my new statement. Let's look for more. Let's look for more this Christmas. One of my favorite passages is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. You know it. You're probably familiar with it. Let me read it to you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, I've studied that passage over the years many times. And you know what I missed was the first word. I was too quick. I was too quick to get to this dwelling richly in my heart. And I skipped over the word let. And what that word let means is that it's an invitation. And what Paul is exhorting us in that verse, he's saying, let the word in. Think about that. That's deep. Let the word in. Well, I hope and pray that we're going to work through this slowly this morning, deliberately, and of course, all within my allocated time. Michael, <laughs> he did give me a little bit more flexibility in the second than in the first. And so, our hope is that we're going to be able to look at this wonder of Christmas. Hey, you know what? Scratch that for a second. Not the wonder of Christmas but the wonder of Christ, the astonishment of Christ, the amazement of Christ, the shock and awe of Christ. We got a little bit of a military passage. I got mighty God. Thank you. I like that. I'm a little bit militant, as you know. What I love about that, I, you heard about shock and awe, maybe for the first time I did in 2003 when, when the, the Iraqi invasion, if you remember that. And with this shock and awe, you understand that that is actually like, was referred to as military-type doctrine. And what that represents is actually an overwhelming or like a, a powerful dominance in strategies and tactics. And in the, the mighty army of the United States, and that was their doctrine and what they were communicating to the public. So let's transfer that, this shock and awe of Christ. Well, last week, Mike opened up the series in Isaiah 9-6, and he shared with us the first of the, first of the four names. That in these names, they did describe the character, the very character of our mighty God, Jesus Christ. He was called the Wonderful Counselor, who was one who would show us the Father and lead us to the truth about ourselves and about life. Well, this week, I look, get the chance to, to look at the second word, Mighty God, El Gabor. Isn't that a great name? I was thinking of that song this morning, that what a great name. It is El Gabor, and that's in Hebrew. It means strong and mighty, and it describes 
a hero, a mighty, mighty warrior. It speaks of military might. In Genesis chapter 10, it describes Nimrod as this mighty warrior, this mighty hunter. Boy, do you remember this King series that we went through? My favorite passage, and Mike knows it, was when we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we saw these mighty warriors of David. I mean, I was connected. I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be on the front line with those guys. So if you need any water, you just let me know. I'll go get it for you. Well, every generation, every generation has heroes. These are men and women who rise to the top and seemingly, seemingly, they seem to be above all else. And that could be in some type of supernatural strength, supernatural courage, or supernatural wisdom. Men and women, we point to them as being in amazement to them as our heroes. And all of us have mighty heroes. When Mike told me what he wanted me to preach on, mighty God, you know what this went through this baby boomer's head about the word mighty, right? So what was the first thing you would pop into my head but mighty mouse. (laughs) Mighty mouse, not the mighty God. I got there. But mighty mouse first. And those that are kind of looking at me with kids, you can ask mom about that, Tim, later. But Mighty Mouse, he was a superhero in the 60s. He was one of my cartoon favorites on Saturday morning. He was awesome. He was just awesome for two reasons. One, he could fly, and he had super strength. And by the way, one more is that he was short. I did have a real hero, too. We have people that we look up to. And my real-life hero is my pop, Ray Torres. He, in my eyes, was the strongest man in the world. He had the strongest hands of anyone that I've ever encountered. Very powerful hands. Well, I needed to know the story, because he was strong. And I believe he was supernaturally strong. So what was the story? So this is it. When Pop was 14 years of age, he sustained a very, very serious back injury. Sadly, his parents didn't have insurance. And so they needed to seek out some help, actually, from a very recognized chiropractor. And that chiropractor recommended some radical treatment that involved some very intense treatment of traction, where Pop had to hang on a bar and allow his body weight to just work on that spine to bring some correction. Well, it just wasn't like for a few minutes, and you know how that is, you can all do that, right? But can you do it for 15 minutes, 30 minutes? Can you do it for an hour, hour and a half? Well, Pop could do that because he was gonna get better and he did. But when he was hanging on that bar all those times, getting better, is that he got bored, so he started doing pull-ups. <laughs> so Pop could rip off 50 or 60 pull-ups, no sweat. And with those, can you imagine the, the strength in his hands? And so I must tell you 
that I was a very good kid. <laughs> the best part of the story, though, is that I tell that, and the kids, yeah, they don't believe it. They do believe it, not really sure. But it was a few years ago when my, my oldest, Davey, as you know, and he's up here, Dave's a pretty strapping young man. He says, I'm going to check out how strong Grandpa is. Well, Dave's not in here, but he was a little embarrassed. <laughs> he was humbled. Because Grandpa, you don't mess with Grandpa. <laughs> well, God knows. God knows I love my pop. But we need visible examples as heroes. And God opened my eyes in the late 70s to the Word of God. And you know what I found? That there are hundreds, hundreds of superheroes Mighty, mighty heroes in Scripture. Men and women that are single-mindedly committed to their Lord and Savior. Their strength was found in God alone. They took no glory for themselves, and their life stood as the test of time. Their character always surpassed their accomplishments. But you know what? There is only one in all of those who is the ultimate hero. It is that child. It is that child. He will be called a warrior. He will be called mighty God. He is a champion. He is a great and valiant warrior. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord our, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. You lift up, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. You know, I said earlier about this invitation of letting the word in. It's like putting a crack in your door. And what we need to do is we need to open that door. And I love about this passage in, in Psalm 24, and the picture is, is of these gates, is to open it wide for the king because it's so big to come in. And so open it up. Invite the Lord. Invite the word in. Well, these qualities, these qualities of Gabor, in the compound with the name El, it means mighty God. So, with that, if we understand that the word of God means mighty power, then when really what the title is saying is that he is mighty, mighty God. In other words, that Jesus is set apart. He's set apart from all other powers and spirit beings. He is supreme. Now, both physical and spiritual battles we're in, Right? Constantly, every one of us. And so we need, we need a valiant warrior. El Gabor, mighty God, 
what that points to and what Isaiah is pointing us to is that there's going to be a day when all of God's enemies, all of God's enemies, the physical as well as the spiritual, are going to be vanquished. All creation. All creation will bow at the feet of Jesus. Let me give you a passage to nail that. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, therefore, verse 9, for therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those of under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. He is the sovereign ruler. Do you see the mandate in that verse? Do you see the mandate? In other words, all will bow. You're either going to bow willingly or you're going to bow painfully. Well, I want to take us back to Isaiah, if we could. I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 9. The child is a warrior. He describes this Messiah. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. In the context of Isaiah 9, Isaiah describes this hardship for Israel. If you just look at the beginning of chapter 9 there, and you just see, for example, in verse 1, it says, and it talks about, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed. There was this, in, this ensuing in this eminent attack by the Assyrians, and the first to experience that was going to be the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But then you have this encouraging word that follows that. He says, and then afterward. Do you see that? And then the afterward part is just fast forward to what you see in verse 2. It goes from gloom to light. How did Jesus represent himself in John? As what? The light of the world. I love about this is that what we see in these passages is that what Mike covered last week, that the government will be upon his shoulder, that he has this name, it should be called Wonderful Counselor. And so he has this ability, we see here, this wisdom to govern, but if you catch the other part of this, is this, this, this mighty power to be able to carry it out. You know what the problem is with earthly heroes? Is that we're going to fail. They're going to fail. And what is the greatest hope and encouragement is that Jesus is a finisher. He's a finisher. He will carry it out. And that's what I need. I need a warrior that's going to win. <laughs> we all want that, right? Isaiah follows in the following chapter, in chapter 10, with a prophecy that alludes to this future restoration. And this is future. Of Israel, when a remnant will return and this is Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. He's talking about these Jews that will, who believe in the Messiah and that they will return to Jacob, which is this El Gabor, the mighty God. 
I, I have to show you something really neat. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. Since we're in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Starting in verse 1. Isaiah 61. I want to read this to you. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn. Make yourself a little note in there that if you later on, take a look at Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Luke 4, verse 19. Because at the onset of Jesus' ministry is that he went to the synagogue he opened the scripture and he read from Isaiah 61. Here's the cool part. Is that Jesus stopped. He stopped reading when he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus before them was proclaiming that he was this first advent. He stopped at that point and said in Luke, he says then he closes the book. Do you know what that means? Is that he was announcing it, and that's future. And what Isaiah is saying is, is that Christ will return. Christ is coming. And he will return in majesty as this valiant warrior. He is the mighty God, the divine warrior. This warrior, he conquers every adversary, including our worldly enemies. Who's against us? Those mortal enemies are sin. Remember in Romans, because of Christ, we are dead to sin. Over death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where is what? Your sting. In Hebrews 2, 14, where he put Satan in his place, no longer to be a threat. For the believer, it is a mighty, mighty victory. The mighty God will come again to avenge wrongs. Go with me, if you could, to the last book of the Bible in Revelation 19. Do you like to, you like horses? If you're a believer, Guess what? You will. <laughs> Revelation 19. I'm going to start looking at in verse 11. Now I saw opened, the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire. On his head there were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I as believers. Now out of the mouth goes a sharp sword with which with, with it he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself threads the winepress 
of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love uniforms. And can you just picture this uniform that on the side, this banner, this banner down the side of Christ's uniform that says, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Man, that's awesome. It's awesome. Here you've got this absolute sovereignty in this banner. The child is a warrior. Now to the second declaration. The child is all-powerful. The child is all-powerful. You know, sometimes it's just too easy, too flippant for us to say that we have a powerful Savior. And I would submit that the phrases can sometimes lose their potency because we just throw them around. Words mighty, words of power. I'll give you a couple examples of that. You might call someone a powerful leader. Personally, I think Michael is a very powerful preacher. Amen? You might say that the United States, based on my previous statement, is a mighty army. Now, come on. If you ever played baseball, what would you rather be, a leadoff hitter or a power hitter? For the basketball group here, I don't want to be the guard. I want to be the power forward. Small to small stature team. That's it. Well, actually, one more example. Back in 1979, when I caught the first glimpse of Lori in the school cafeteria, I thought she looked mighty fine. You get the point. You get the point that we use these words sometimes very quickly, very flippantly, and sometimes it loses the impact, and Isaiah is just saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Go deep. Let's get more. The two verses that I have there, John 1, 3, through him all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. The child is all-powerful. He is the creator he is the sustainer of all creation. And what that verse says in John 1.3 is that Jesus creates. Look at it. It says he creates. And it indicates that he is God. Everything that is material, everything that is spiritual, he creates. Now, a similar claim in Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether throne or powers or rulers, authorities, all things were created by him. Catch that. And for him. Do you see that? And what that is saying is that Jesus as the creator, he created for his own pleasure and for his own glory. And catch this, the last part. That he is above all things and in him all things hold together. He upholds all things. He sustains and he maintains. You talk about strong hands. Those are very, very strong hands. He has the power to bring us to God. 
He is all-powerful, and no greater power than to be able to bring us from where we're at now in our state of sinfulness to bring us to God. I want you to take a look at a kind of an unusual and more lengthy passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. You might need to open up your Bibles there because that's a little tight, but that's all how I could squeeze it in there. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter, excuse me, chapter 3. Let me read that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When once the, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of the good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Christ's sufficient sacrifice once for sins brought us to him, opened the way to God, it's deep. We see this, this true victory. It's a victory passage. And I don't want you, to, I want you to catch this because it ties exactly into this aspect of the mightiness of God. You see the victory of him bearing sins at the beginning of that verse. And then this victory proclamation. What is that about? Think about it. It says that he went. He went somewhere and he preached and he proclaimed I'm, not, I'm here to tell you, he didn't go to evangelize to those demons. And that, that demons were referring specifically to those in Tartarus, which was this prison of these angels that had sinned back in Genesis. Look at that. It is not a preaching. It's not. It's a proclamation. And that word proclamation, you know what that means? It means like a triumphal statement. So this is my wording of this, is that he went to prison and he said, I won. He proclaimed the victory in his death and his resurrection over Satan. We know that from the beginning of time that Satan and his angels have been in constant war with God, right? We're experiencing that battlefield as well. And I think that that proclamation forward to you is that there's no greater encouragement to take but to recognize that he is a finisher. He said he won. 1 Peter 3, 22 ends and he says he doesn't have just authority. It's said in here who is at the, uh, the authorities of the powers have been subjected to him. He has authority over all the heavenly realm. We see the child is all-powerful. He has supreme authority. He has supreme authority. In Matthew, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 28, he had declared that all heaven and 
All authority in heaven and on earth had been given to me, it says. And not only do we see the evidence in the authority of his teaching, is in like in Matthew 7, 29, where those disciples and those who were with him said, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They put him in contrast to that. But we also see it in his miracles. They were a testimony to his power and to his authority. Matthew 8, I love the, when he calmed the storm. And I love it in Matthew 11 when John is in prison. He, John sent his disciples to go and to ask Jesus the question, right? Are you the Messiah? And he answered the question. He says, well, what is your observation? What is the evidence? And that evidence, by the way, is that Jesus gave him is verbatim of what you'll find in Isaiah 29 and 35. Pretty cool stuff. You want validation? The evidence is there. He revealed his might and power by the way he endured temptation. Hebrews 4. That he had all points that he had been tempted and yet without sin. We see it in his, his death and his resurrection. Just two examples. Remember when Christ died, and John it tells us in John 19.30 that he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. All of redemption was brought to completion. He is a finisher. And then, of course, another one of my favorites is that the power of that resurrection and the evidence when that veil was torn in two. Do you get what that meant? Is that that's what brought us to him. Is that now as believers in Christ is that we can be within this holy of holy. To be in his presence is that he brings us to him. So put all those, put all those claims together and like, what's your conclusion? He is supreme. He is the mighty God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we see this preeminence of Christ. And this is what it says. That God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son when he appointed Christ, heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the radiance. He is the exact representation of God. He is the sacrifice, and he is the exalted. And so, to reject Christ is to reject God. So Jesus, he drew a very clear line. <laughs> it's very clear. His declaration was firm, it was direct, it was militant. We bow before him or we don't. Now, the fact is, that's where we will spend eternity based on your response to that. The child is powerful. And lastly, the child is mighty to save. So why would this title of Jesus, Mighty God, Mighty to save, bring us joy. Why would that bring us joy and worship to our hearts? So let me give you a couple of considerations. The first one is because he can. He is able. He is able to do what he promised. 
You know, when we talked again about those heroes, is that we talked about their accomplishments, is that our hero is a finisher. He will complete it. He has brought us to God. And when Jesus promises something, he will do it. And what he promises is not only will he give us eternal life, he reminds us that no one can take us out of his hands. These are very strong hands. Read with me, John chapter 10, 28 to 30. I want you to catch something. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We use that verse as an assurance, right? Because what we're reminded of is that only Jesus, only Jesus can actually provide the absolute security for eternity. But what I want you to catch in that verse is that you see there's, it repeats itself twice. Sometimes, once again, we read it too fast. We miss that. Look at that yourself. No one can snatch them out of my, of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of the hand of the fathers. This is very, very strong hands. Hebrews 7:25 adds to that. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You know, I love, for just a little extra credit, I love Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You know the verse. Where it says, just to emphasize that he is a finisher. Philippians 1, 6, it says, Be confident, or being confident of this very thing, that he, Jesus, who began a what? A good work in you will what? He will complete it. He is a finisher. You see that? He's a finisher. And trust me, we desperately, we need a finisher. We need the promise to be true. Because when we look at Scripture and we see the standards of holiness that it provides, whoa. That's all I could say is whoa. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and this commissioning of Isaiah the prophet, it's worth a, a study. It's worth a read again. Because what it does is, I think it gives us a glimpse to how the Spirit worked to be able to write those words that we see in this coming of this child in Isaiah 7. And this verse of description of the character of that coming Messiah in chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 1, excuse me, 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is filled with the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This is astounding, by the way. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah says, So I said, Woe is me, 
for I'm under, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Truly. Isaiah, he got a, a vision of God's pure holiness. And that vision reminded him of his true unworthiness that deserved nothing other than judgment. The promise of Jesus is that in spite of our sin, we can be made new because of him. Jesus Christ, he came in the flesh, became to us as a baby, perfectly human, yet both God and man. Had to be both. Because all those animal sacrifices couldn't get it done. And so therefore, it required a perfect substitute. 2 Corinthians 15, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to close with a beautiful, a beautiful passage in Zephaniah. Zephaniah, this promise is given to the Jews who will come to faith in the Messiah in the latter days. But it also provides promise and applicable to us as believers today in this age. The prophet records in Zephaniah 3.17, that the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty Gabor to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I want to kind of close with a Spurgeon quote on that verse. And as I'm reading it, I want you just to look again at this because there's some beautiful things that are behind this verse. Spurgeon remarks, what a word is this? Jehovah God in the center of his people, in all the majesty of his power. This presence alone suffices to inspire us with peace and hope. Treasures of boundless might are stored in our mighty God. And he dwells in the midst of his people. Therefore, may his people shout for joy. There's that joy. We not only have his presence, but he is engaged upon his choice work of salvation. He is mighty to save. He is always saving, and he takes his name Jesus from it. And so let us not fear, for he is mighty to save. He even finds a theme song in his beloved. It's beautiful. Well, it is my hope. It's my hope that this morning that you realize that that helpless little baby in the manger, that child, was really El Gabor, the mighty God. Those little tiny hands are the very same hands that are upholding the universe. Think about that. Very, very, very strong hands. The Christmas story is about God. 
It's about the Almighty God. I have to ask a question. Have you proclaimed Jesus as your mighty God and Savior? You better do it today. Our salvation, our strength, and our security is absolutely dependent upon him. And in Acts 4.12, it tells us very clearly, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Believe in the mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, today. He is the mighty God. I can rest. You can rest. In that assurance and in that peace. Why? Because we have a mighty, valiant warrior, Jesus, that's fighting for you and making intercession for you until we are with him. Let's pray. Father God, we just love you so much. Father, we thank you for this unfathomable privilege that we have as your children to be able to have your word. Father, we invite you in. Father, let your word richly dwell within us. I pray, Father, that as we are amid this Advent season, that we will recognize your majesty and your power, for you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we are humbled. We are humbled that you have chosen us as your children to be in your presence and to spend eternity with you. There is no greater comfort. We thank you that we always before us is that we have a mighty, mighty, valiant warrior that is before us and interceding for us. And for this, Father, we just give you all the praise and the honor and the glory in Christ's name. Amen.